PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. This week on PA Books, Stephen Medvick, Matthew Skousen, and Burwood Yost, authors of Are All Politics Nationalized? Stephen Medvick, Matthew Skousen, and Burwood Yost are the editors of Are All Politics Nationalized? Evidence from the 2020 Campaigns in Pennsylvania. Burwood, in this book, what do you mean by nationalization? Well, that's a, a good question, and actually it's the reason we wrote the book. The scholarship the common discussion about politics these days often points to nationalization as being kind of a skeleton key that explains a lot of what's going on in our politics, but no one ever really clearly defines what they mean by nationalization or how it should work. Uh, in our book, we settled on um, a rather simple definition of nationalization, and, and by that we meant that any uh, issue that um, uh, could be discussed by any candidate anywhere was basically nationalized. So if you could take a campaign ad, for instance, we, we looked at a lot of advertising. If that ad could have been run anywhere with uh, any candidate, you know, a different candidate, we would have say that's a nationalized um, um, campaign ad. And basically what you're doing uh, with nationalization is you're just trying to use issues that connect to uh, national topics while ignoring local issues that are important to voters. And so um, that was one of the central tasks of our book was understanding a little bit more about nationalization and that included um, defining it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it might help to, to think about the opposite of nationalization, you know, so what would be a localized um, uh, campaign appeal? And that would be something that was specific to a candidate or an issue that a, a local community might deal with that the rest of the country wouldn't deal with. So if a candidate were, were to say, you know, I was a, 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 an Iraq war vet, not every candidate around the country would be able to say that. So a candidate making that kind of appeal was localized in the sense that they were bringing it back to themselves, bringing it back to, to the district or the local area and focusing on that. Mm-hmm. Matt, why was Pennsylvania such a good choice for looking at this subject? Well, Pennsylvania is so representative of the nation. Um, there's so many different types of areas where we have urban areas, we have rural areas, we have uh, suburbs, and so, and it's also, um, it's one of the key states in the presidential election. So we knew that there'd be a lot of campaign go- campaigning going on here. And so Pennsylvania seemed like a perfect uh, case study for us. Um, and I, I think that uh, there were a lot of people that were concerned about nationalization saying, you know, people have, uh, candidates have lost touch with voters. And um, so there's a kind of a, a negative connotation with that. And so we thought, um, Let's try and look at it from the candidate's point of view. Like, what was important to them? How were they reaching out to voters? Were they ignoring kind of local and state concerns and only focusing on national concerns? Or were they also focusing on local concerns? How did you decide what types of campaigns to look at? Well, actually, we took an approach that was, um, as far as we know, never done before. Um, We decided that we didn't want to look at one 
level of, of political campaigning, that what we thought would be interesting and would be most, uh, give us the best chance of seeing how nationalized races were up and down the ballot, was by studying not just the presidential campaign, but also a congressional district and then a couple of state house races within that congressional district. With the idea being if the races were truly nationalized, we would see coordination at the various levels of donors, of messaging, um, of, of campaign events. Like if things were really nationalized, one of those implications mm -hmm. are that there would be all of this coordination and there would be some kind of national force driving how people campaign up and down the ballot. And so what we were looking for was a, a good mix of districts where we knew um, some more competitive, some less competitive, some rural, some urban, some suburban, um, some represented by Republicans, some by Democrats. We really were just trying to get a mix of races that would give us kind of you could almost think of it as a core sample, right? In geology, you take a sample and you try to understand the layers. That's basically what we were doing. That's how we approached our task mm -hmm. and hoping to see kind of how things trickled down or flowed back up. And, and we should say a lot of the work done in these congressional districts, I mean, it was a lot of work to begin with, and it was done by a lot of our colleagues uh, at colleges and universities around around Pennsylvania. So we had some great uh, contributors to the book who did the case studies in, in, in all the congressional districts. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that made this book unique is uh, there were uh, scholars from seven different uh, Pennsylvania colleges and universities that were involved in this right. project. And that was really neat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now the, the districts that you look at uh, as case studies are around the state. So you've got the, the first and the fourth, which are in the southeast Pennsylvania, uh, the eighth, which is in northeast, tenth here in the central Pennsylvania, the sixteenth up in Erie in the northwest, and then the seventeenth in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, th how does that geographic scope uh, reveal uh, what you're looking for in, in this book? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we we didn't enter uh, enter this um, project with any specific kind of hypotheses to test. What we thought would be the best approach would be to to say, let's gather a bunch of different case studies and look at every element of the campaigns up and down the ballot and. That might tell us something about how nationalized we are, because you know we hear the stories. When we were wrapping up this this book uh, in in 21, um, you know, people were talking about uh, um, local school district races hinging on nationalized issue. We we always hear that nationalization's driving everything, um, and so you know we thought it was important to just get this broad picture from as many different places as we could with as many different perspectives. I mean, that's why you use multiple scholars to study this stuff. Um, and so that was really our driving motivation, that we would have, have lots of ground to cover, and eventually we'd be able to develop some hypotheses as a result of what we collect in these case studies. Now, you say that uh, people often use nationalization and polarization interchangeably. What's the difference? So polarization is really kind of the gap, just the gap between the parties, uh, either on issues um, or on even attitudes. So feelings about the other party can can polarize uh, if if people start to think of the other party much more negatively than they do of their own party. We call that affective polarization. So it's just really how big a, a difference between the parties is there. And there's a lot of ways to measure that. 
So the, the kind of standard way to do it is to look at uh, elected officials and their roll call votes and see how, much, how, how wide a gap between uh, Democrats and Republicans there might be. And you can track that over time and you see that there, the gap has grown over time. And so that, you know, it's, a, it's, a compare, it's sort of a comparison of the two parties and where they stand, whereas nationalization is more about the kind of issue set that people are discussing. Right. And so the, the difference between polarization and nationalization is polarization basically has the parties pulling apart, right, and becoming more homogenous, where nationalization is the language that's being used at the different levels. So if you have consistent messaging at the presidential level, at the congressional level, at the state level, then you have nationalization. And that can in turn drive polarization, mm -hmm. right? So right. it is, that's why they often um, get confused as being the same thing. Now, if we look at the, the ideological makeup of the parties over time. If you go back to the 1950s, you had conservatives in the Republican and the Democratic Party and liberals in the Republican and Democratic Party. That has changed significantly over the decades. How does that affect or play into uh, the area of your study? Well, the parties, it's a long story. It's, you know, the parties have, um, sorted ideologically, like you've said, so that starting really in the kind of middle of the 20th century, um, you know, the liberals began to feel uncomfortable in the Republican Party and conservatives uncomfortable in the Democratic Party. Uh, but if you go far enough back, there was, there was polarization before yeah. the, the, the Great Depression and before the, uh, before the New Deal. And so we've had this before. And in fact, I, I, I tend to think that that may be the natural state of politics, that, that in a two-party system, the parties probably will normally be pretty different and take polar opposite views on most issues. Um, but the middle of the 20th century was kind of unique and, and a little bit strange. I mean, coming out of the Great Depression and, and World War II, Democrats just dominated. And so it was such a big party that it encompassed virtually everybody. But that was probably not going to last for long, and so it sorted itself out, you know, with where, where the two parties have become much more ideologically cohesive. And that has gone from elites to yeah. voters, right? Yeah. So I think Stephen was talking earlier about polarization and how you measure it uh, among uh, congressional uh, uh, office holders, right? And you see this gap between the parties growing, and that has consequently led voters to kind of move in, in that direction. So we cover that, I think, in Chapter 2, where we talk about the fact that um, the ideological and partisan makeup of the electorate even in the past 20 years, has just changed markedly. So as Stephen said, you don't have many liberal, Dem or liberal cons uh, Republicans, you don't have many conservative Democrats, whereas when, when we started in this business, that used to be a staple of Pennsylvania politics. Now, you mentioned the New Deal, and I want to talk a little bit more about that, because you say in the book that FDR's New Deal fundamentally altered the nature of government in the United States. Mm -hmm. How? Well, it made it made uh, it, uh, it provided a much larger role for the federal government in politics. Um, so I think that was uh, a key a key driver. Um, whereas before the New Deal, you know, I don't think the federal government had as big a role to play. And so you can imagine that that might begin to polarize if if the business community doesn't like a big role for government, um, they're going to find a party that that advocates for their interests. Uh, and if on the other side, um, unions, for example, might want more more uh, government involvement, they're going to pick a party that that advocates for that. So the, I think the growth of the federal government um, 
it, yes. it is to some extent what polarized uh, the, the two parties, although you really see, I think, a lot of movement once civil rights becomes an, an issue on the national agenda. Yeah, I think that, that you're absolutely right. So, you know, uh, in the 30s, we see this nationalization that we're seeing today. So sometimes we think it never happened. A great example of that would be uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. When he first ran for the House of Representatives, uh, it was during the Great Depression, and Johnson said, I have three issues I'm running on. Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Roosevelt. You don't get any more nationalized than that. Right. Now, you also talk about how, uh, since the, the Democrats were such a dominant party for so long, the Republicans had to respond to that. How did, how did they respond organizationally or in strategy? So I think initially the, they, they, they thought, well, if we're going to get anything done, we're going to have to compromise. Um, and so they, they, they took moderate positions because they thought, well, maybe what we can do is moderate the Democratic Party's response to whatever the issue is they're dealing with. Um, and so it's an interesting question, though, to say, well, like, who started this polarization uh, issue? Because really, it probably, if you trace it far enough back, it, it really is activists in the Dem liberal activists in the Democratic Party who began saying as early as the 40s, why do we have these conservative Southern Democrats in the party when the rest of us want to begin to push for civil rights? So maybe we should begin to purify the party. And that wasn't elected officials or even party operatives who said that. That was sort of interest group activists. Um, the Republican Party, once the Democratic Party started doing that, they took a hint, and some of the activists in the Republican Party said, well, let's make this a, a, a purely conservative party. So, you know, again, there's a lot of maybe finger-pointing and blame to go around, but I think, you know, really it's the, the kind of activists in the parties, the interest groups that have, that try to pull the parties to one side or the other, who start the process, elected officials, you know, react, and then, as Burwood said earlier, the voters follow along behind them. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, you talked about ads, that you were looking at ads. Uh, now, ads can come from a variety of sources. Uh, candidate campaigns have them, parties have them, outside groups. Uh, what did you find in terms of nationalized subjects based upon where those ads were coming from? So, th that was actually another unique feature of our, uh, our work. We um, were able to look at all of the ads being run in Pennsylvania during the 2020 race, um, and um, we, we all, the three of us, sat and had a scoring tool that we developed, and we each individually scored every campaign ad that we saw. So um, we didn't get hazard pay for that, we probably should have. But we did a lot of coding of these, expecting that the themes would be primarily about um, you know, national issues. I mean, it was COVID, COVID, right? 2020 was COVID. Why not? I would expect that to be a, a major theme of the advertising. There were, of course, economic concerns that could be nationalized. And so we went into that, um, that coding process by looking at all of these races, coding them according to their level of nationalization as we defined it, and finding that while the congressional races were a bit more uh, nationalized in their messaging, they they weren't totally nationalized. And in fact, the state house races were more localized than nationalized. So people often talk, candidates for state house often talked about, um, you know, the, their incumbency status. They might have talked about a local issue. They might have talked about being representative of this community um, and talking about the specifics of that community. In one of our chapters, 
uh, an author talks about the importance of being one of us in the northeastern uh, congressional districts. And so um, we did not see as much nationalization in that advertising uh, as we expected to see. Now, what's important, too, is that there are other channels of communication. So is it possible that the television advertising or the, the ads that pop up on your computer screen are different than, say, the, the messages on Twitter or Facebook or at debates? And, and we looked at all of those things. And, and, and it was surprising that we didn't see as much um, in terms of nationalized messaging as we expected. And I think that's especially given COVID because yes. it was such a prominent issue that, we, you know, if, in fact, if we had found a lot of nationalization, I think a critique might have been, well, this is a unique year when everybody's talking about the same thing, COVID. But it still well, turned out and it wasn't. President Trump, right? I mean, he was a President very Trump polarizing right. figure. I mean, the other thing so, that was happening in the summer was, was you know, George Floyd protests, and so uh, the defund the police uh, issue was, was, you know, could have been prominent. It showed up in some of the ads, but not as much as you yeah, might have I thought. I think if any campaign would have been really nationalized at the lower levels, it would have been 2020 just because of, yeah. of all these things that were, you know, there was just such a disruption to our politics and to our lives that maybe that would be an opportune time, um, but, but we just didn't see it to and, the extent we thought. And what was interesting is, even at the presidential level, we saw some localization. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a presidential campaign, and, you know, uh, President Trump at the time was talking about fracking in western Pennsylvania, and you had Biden talking about his roots in Scranton. And so even, even in a national right. campaign, they were running kind of localized ads sometimes. And I think what became—we haven't talked about what we found in, in depth yet, but, I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting to us is that in all the races that we looked at, there were 18 in total, six congressional districts. 12 uh, state house districts. Um, we didn't find any races where both candidates really emphasized national messages. And in some instances, you had a candidate who might be all in on national topics, whether it's COVID or, um, you know, pick, pick the issue, defund the police. Um, but in, in many, in every circumstance, they're, they're, both candidates uh, didn't take that stance. No, no one tried to out-nationalize the other. It's usually one candidate thought that was their best route, and the other chose a decidedly local approach, including one of the most interesting case studies is the 1st Congressional District, um, Brian uh, Fitzpatrick. Um, he never mentioned being a Republican. Um, he actually... He and I think some of the state house candidates campaigned on um, environmental right. uh, and climate change issues, right? And so if you really look, you can find a lot of localized messaging, at least in these campaigns. We, uh, we did. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the surprising findings, particularly about the Fitzpatrick race, because that was a congressional district that Biden won. Right, and yet we had Republicans win uh, at the congressional level and at the state level, um, and partly was the messaging. Um, yeah. 
Right, and so it flies in the face of this idea of, of just straight ticket voting. You know, there, there clearly has been an increase in straight ticket yes. voting, and that's why a lot of political scientists conclude that, well, there must be nationalization then, because people are kind of taking their cues for, at the top of the ticket for president and then just voting the same party all the way down. But clearly, in a lot of the races that we looked at, um, they didn't. They were, there was enough split ticket voting, at least, that you got different results at the presidential, congressional, and state legislative uh, levels. Now, you mentioned that, you know, it was a mix of what that candidate thought they needed to do to win. So does that mean that there was no, I mean, in, in the congressional races, they all had an incumbent and the incumbents all won. Was there any pattern between what the incumbents did versus what the challengers did, or was it totally uh, based on individuals? Well, I think what we found was competitive, competitiveness mattered the most. In races that were not competitive at all, if, if you were in a congressional race that, oh, you were the Republican and it, you were all in, uh, the district was overwhelmingly Republican, you were more likely to, to nationalize. Same thing on the Democratic side. If you were in a race that became competitive, and we had two races that were really safe, and in both cases, the incumbents uh, nationalized more than the other candidates. In four of our races, they were more competitive. And we saw as the races became more competitive, they were more local. They did not focus on national. In many of those races, they didn't talk about uh, the, uh, Trump or Biden. They really focused on local issues. Yeah, we really saw the effect of incumbency, which in a polarized, nationalized environment, uh, you would expect to count for less. Um, but in, I think, uh, virtually all the candidates who were incumbents won, I think, except for one. Mm -hmm. um, so, so these non-national sort of uh, issues mm -hmm. became prominent in uh, predicting the outcomes. But you can see how this works in those really safe districts because the candidate who's advantaged by, by the party advantage in their district, you know, they, they can afford to nationalize. But it was always the case that the candidate disadvantaged by the partisan makeup of the district would try to make it very local. You know, well, let's not talk about national politics. Let's not make this about Democrats or Republicans. Let's make it about who knows you best, who, who's in this community and knows the community, who cares about the local issues. It usually doesn't work yeah. for them, but, but you know, that's, that's, the only, that's the only hand they can play. Now, you talk in the book about the influence of political elites and uh, uh, how much do political elites drive nationalization? It's <laughs> a, a good question. I mean, it, it, I think they're the, they are the ones driving it. I mean, but it, I guess the question is, well, who counts as an elite? So sometimes it might be these outside groups that are that come into a, a district or come into a race and say, you know, we have issues we really want to push, and so we're going to push those issues. Um, sometimes it's the parties because they think they have an advantage, and sometimes it's the candidate themselves. You know, there was the, the Republican candidate out in, in the Pittsburgh congressional district, Sean Parnell, you know, had built a, I mean, part of his background was being a commentator on Fox News, and so he had built a national kind of reputation. He was a little more ideological than, than some other candidates. He was going to nationalize that race, probably no matter what. And so, you know, so it, I, I don't think it's coming from the bottom up. I don't think that the voters are saying, hey, let's only focus on national concerns, because the local issues are the ones they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's some element of the elite political class coming in. And you, you do also see kind of how the what the candidate is comfortable with comes into play in this kind of yes. story. Because in the 16th congressional district, Kelly's district, um, he had a, an advantage, an incumbent registration advantage. That was a safe district for him. Yet one of his most powerful ads was an ad about his um, helping uh, an employee 
someone who worked for his company, um, overcome an opioid addiction, and you know how he was contributing to the community in that way. That was a completely localized message um, that was, I think, pretty effective. Mm -hmm. So it, it does, I think, one of the things that we realized was that how, how a candidate, sort of their perspective, their background, the reasons for running, all of those things drive whether or not and how comfortable, I think, they are nationalizing uh, their messaging. Well, and there's always an incentive, I think, for an elected official to say, I'm, I'm one of you, I'm from the community, I, if they can claim that, you know, I understand this community, I'm working hard for this community. So at any level, an elected official will want to sort of make that connection with the voters, I think. And, and I think that's one of the pieces of good news out of the book is that that's good for representation. You know, you do want people who, can, who, who really can have a connection to local voters. And, and to the extent that they emphasize that, then they're being good representatives. I yeah, think. I think it, I, just to emphasize that point, right, the, the themes around nationalization, discussions around nationalization and polarization from a governing perspective really do limit our opportunities to pass policies and to come to consensus. And so I think it's really um, beneficial to see that candidates are willing to talk about local things because those are things that voters think can be, you could get something done that right. way. So it gives you, I think, more confidence that your office holders are doing the kinds of things that you need in your community. Which but it's is interesting because I do think that we have candidate-centered elections. Part of what people were arguing with nationalization is that we were moving to more party-centered, right, where, where all the candidates would line up and basically, and I think what we found uh, consistently was the candidates were making these decisions. And so the candidates were really deciding how local do I want to be or how national. And it does seem like if we have, they're in a competitive district, they're going to stay local and they're going to focus on local concerns. Let's talk a little bit more about that. How, how much power does a party organization have to enforce discipline during these campaigns? <laughs> none any longer, <laughs> nearly, nearly none. I mean, you know, there was a time when they had a, a little more ability to do that, but they've really kind of lost that over time. And so it, it, it really is still, I mean, it's uh, one political scientist, you know, refers to strong partisanship and weak parties. So people have this sense of partisanship, uh, voters and, and candidates, uh, but the parties themselves as organizations are, are pretty weak still, and they kind of follow the lead of the, of the individual candidates. And that's particularly because of primaries and caucuses, right? Because they no longer really control who the nominees are. If you want to be a nominee, nominee for a Republican party, you just wake up and say, I feel like running as a Republican. And it's really hard for parties to stand in the way and say, we're going to be a gatekeeper of who's going to be running. They really don't have that And power. it is interesting because at, at times there were candidates in the case studies who wished they could have more guidance and more uh, kind of consistent messaging and and help from party organizations. Some of the, the the interviews that were done in these case study chapters, candidates actually said, "I I was asking for help, and and we didn't get it right." And so um, we would expect in a nationalized environment, all of the same messaging would trickle downhill. Um, all the same consultants would have them beating the same drum, and we just didn't see it. Yeah, it's interesting because we were really looking for that. We really we thought that that the parties would play a much bigger role. Um, I interviewed. A, um, a state party official on the Democratic side asking about that. And he looked at me and he said, well, it doesn't work. I mean, if you're running in Scranton or you're running in Pittsburgh, it's totally different. For us to say one message is going to work all the way across Pennsylvania, you're crazy. <laughs> so I think it is hard for parties, too.
We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books Podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Another element in, in campaigns is money, mm-hmm. and money comes from a variety of sources. Did you find any connection between money and campaigns and nationalization? We didn't. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't. No, yeah, it, we didn't. Um, the, the, we didn't find any or outside groups, for example, spending money in a lot of different races to sort of push the same kind of issue. So they would pick a couple of races maybe that they were, and usually at the same level, so they might pick a couple of state legislative races uh, throughout the state, but usually not a lot and, and, and almost never at multiple levels uh, up and down the ballot. So, um, so we didn't see that kind of organized effort you know, to spend money in campaigns. Like Again, this is sometimes the concern about nationalization is that in school board races you might have national organizations that don't know anything about the state and certainly know, don't know anything about the school district, but they come in and they drop a lot of money and they, they win these races. We didn't see a lot of evidence for that. I think that's important to underscore. The, we didn't see any organization that came in and gave money to the presidential race, to the congressional race, and the state house race, and for that matter, not even the presidential and congressional race, that was rare. So that means, and there was no, there were no advertisers doing that either, right? Spending their money to advertise, you know, kind of down um, through, the, through the different kinds of races. They picked a race. They picked a level, and that's kind of where they stayed at. And that's even true. Maybe, Stephen, you talk a little bit about the campaign committees from the parties, right? They tend to stay yeah, in their they, lanes. Yeah, they, they stay, yeah, stay in their lanes. I mean, yeah. they, you know, if the, the, what we call the Hill committees, the Capitol Hill committees that work for the House and Senate parties, you know, they only stayed in, in congressional races. The state legislative parties stayed in the state, le, uh, state legislative races. And, and even the, you know, you know, the national committees often can, can spend a little more money in other races, not just in the presidential race, but they don't do a lot of that. So everybody kind of stays at their, at their level. One thing I'll say about money, though, and we did not track this in, in, in the study, but there's pretty good evidence that, that candidates are able to raise money from outside their district increasingly because of the Internet. And so at, at all levels of politics now, it's nationalized in the sense that they candidates are getting a lot of money out out of district. I mean, we, again, we didn't we didn't look for that, and we may not have seen a lot of it because we didn't have too many candidates who sort of have a national profile. But there are you know, but it's so easy to raise money now on the internet that that candidates are raising more outside the district. Although there's still a good, there's still not a lot of money spent comparatively in say state house races, right? right. right? The congressional races are becoming more and more expensive, and we know about the the spending on presidential races. But those state house races, um, you know, I was there, there. There just isn't as much giving there. Um, there just isn't as much spending. Um, so that, that they're kind of under resourced in some way. Although when it's only f- a matter of time, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> but I also think many of those are not competitive races. Yes, yeah, right. so competitive right. races. We did see yeah, a good quite, amount of money going into them. Yeah. I mean, that's important mm-hmm. to recognize yeah. too. And I think this is part of the nationalization polarization debate. Is when you look at the way state house races, um, uh, state house districts are um, drawn, there's only about fourteen. 15% of the districts in the state that have a party 
difference of, a, of 10 points or less. So th this underscores Matt's point. Yeah. Most places aren't competitive, and that wasn't true in the, in, in the 90s, say. So as uh, it, it, the infrastructure, the underlying uh, partisanship of the electorate has been organized in a way, you could say artificially, to kind of drive up those partisan differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things you hear an awful lot about these days are news deserts, or a lot of local papers are closing down or losing funding. Uh, how, how does the presence or the, the loss of a local newspaper in these communities affect messaging on local versus nationalization? Well, it's, it's tremendous, and it's, it's one of the reasons people think there's so much nationalization, and it's one of the explanations, at least, for it. Um, I think the, the lack of, of a local news source means that people have nowhere to go but for, to, to sources that are mostly covering national national uh, news, um, and even in places that have a local newspaper, I mean, you know, people may read that, but they're still getting a lot of stuff from cable news, they're, you know, online, they're on social media, uh, and so there's just so much more coverage of national politics now that even in places with a local paper, people are inundated with national news, but if you don't have a local paper, there's no, no other information source. That's a good point, point. and one candidate talked to us about the fact that it was really hard to get local messaging out because there wasn't a source that was really covering that. If there was a local newspaper, they would have followed that, but that kind of messaging was really hard for them to get out. Yeah, I think it was also interesting, I'd like to interject, because there's a lot of conversation about debates and whether campaigns are going to engage in debates anymore. In, in the book and in the case studies, the debates were the place where nationalization kind of dwindles because you, you, you're being asked questions about your local community and that's where kind of a more fuller, more robust, more localized sort of messaging takes place. Mm -hmm. And as those things become less common, uh, you know, again, this is another force driving those nationalized messages. Right, so the people asking questions in the debates are either local journalists or maybe, you know, local members of the League of Women Voters or something, right, and they don't, they're mostly concerned with what are you going to do locally here. So, yeah, so those debates are important, and you're right, if we lose, if people, if candidates decide they're not going to do them, and that's a, that's a loss for does debate about local concerns. Which I wonder if there are going to be more local concerns um, in 2024 because we were in a pandemic, pandemic, so there was not a lot of rallies, there were not a lot of uh, where candidates could get together with groups of people. And if candidates are getting together more with you know, small groups of people, maybe we'll see more uh, local uh, campaigning. Now you're talking about uh, safe seats and competitiveness as, as an impact here. Uh, in 2018, the Supreme Court, uh, state Supreme Court, uh, issued a, a new congressional map. Uh, how did that impact in anything that, that you covered in your study? Well, it created um, some districts that were more competitive than they otherwise yeah. would have been. And so um, I, I think a, a key takeaway from this, this effort for me is how competitive races make a difference in messaging. Right, it forces a candidate to talk about more things and more things that are important to their local voters. They can't just get away with kind of you know broad statements that might appeal nationally into a partisan base. Competition just just means the way they communicate and campaign are are very different. And so by redrawing those congressional districts in 2018, it made a it made a difference. Um, in terms of the competitive of, net competitiveness of some of these races, which in turn would make a difference in the messaging. Now, that didn't affect the state house races. Um, right. So we were still operating under the old state house system 
in the 2020 race that we covered. Um, but even there, with districts that were pretty p strong, I mean, political scientists would say that the, the House districts drawn after the 2020, after the 2010 census were heavily gerrymandered. Um, even there, though, with that kind of gerrymandering, the messaging did tend to emphasize local issues. Mm -hmm. Now, another, another area to look at are the differences in population sizes within congressional districts versus state house districts. Was there any connection between those and nationalization versus local? Yeah, I mean, we saw that big, I mean, bigger districts uh, would, ha would have more nationalization, but that may be also because they're, they're, they're federal uh, offices, right? So it's hard to disentangle whether it was just district size or whether it was that, you know, the congressional districts, yes, they're bigger, but they're also running for Congress and where they debate national issues. So it's hard to, to say, but I, I think maybe there, there's something to district size, so that as a district gets bigger, um, there may be, it's, you know, it's harder, I mean, what local issues would you talk about? Because as a district gets bigger, it's, I mean, you can compare it to a state. We didn't have, except for the presidential campaign, we didn't really have a state, an entire state campaign, like a governor's or a U.S. Senate race, which would be interesting to look at, and we'd like to do yes, that in yes. the future. That's right. um, but, you know, that, that may be more nationalized because what part, of, what, what local area do you focus on if you're going to have a local message, right? So it may just default to a national, a nationalized message. Now, something that connects to that is not just population size, but geographic size of a district. So in some areas where mm, the population is yeah. more concentrated versus some of the rural areas where you have very large districts geographically, does, does that show any, any variation there? We really didn't see any in our, our uh, study. Um, it seemed as if uh, it really mattered. State, uh, state com campaigns were much more localized, no matter how big the, the district was. And that's probably because the, the really big districts will be most likely rural and very Republican. And so again, now we're, now we're talking about pretty safe districts. And so, you know. Uh, but what's interesting at the state level, even those really safe districts, they were not nationalized. They, they were, right. Their that's messaging true. was pretty local. You, we'd have campaigns saying, you know, I was born and raised in this area. I know this area, mm -hmm. um, even though they're in a safe, like, Republican district. Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you when, when you went into this and then you saw the results? You were like, wow, I had no idea. Berwood, anything that jumped out at you? <laughs> well, uh, you know, first, we knew that, uh, the, that all the evidence for these nationalized uh, campaigns were, was coming from voters, the way that voters behaved. And we, we affirmed that in the book. We saw the same kind of thing, that people seemed to be voting for the same party up and down the ballot. Um, so, so that wasn't a surprise. But I think what was a surprise for me was just the fact that um, Local uh, and congressional candidates, state house and congressional candidates, talked a lot about local issues. Um, they were um, attempting to connect with their voters, which is, the, you know, they've got to get reelected, right? So it kind of makes sense. Um, but we would have expected much more conversation about nationalized issues, appeals to party, effective polarization, you know, all those kinds of things. And it just, as I said earlier, we didn't see that uh, both candidates in any race do that. It, it was always the case that one candidate was intensely focused on local issues, and in some instances both were, uh, but never were both candidates focused on national stuff. I think there was less discussion of, 
of Donald Trump too, then I think yeah. we, I, I was yes. a little surprised, you know, that either in a safe district a Republican would really tie themselves to Trump, uh, or maybe uh, you know a, a Democratic candidate might in, in a district that the Republican doesn't want to tie themselves to Trump would try to do that, and there just wasn't as much of that as as, as I think I would have guessed. So that was yeah. kind of surprising. Yeah, we were really surprised, particularly in the ads. We thought there'd be a lot more reference to Trump and uh, to Biden on both sides, and we just really did not see that. Yeah, I, I guess I, uh, you know, another surprise. If you you watch enough ads, <laughs> what we did was how bad some of the, the the spots were that tried to introduce people to make them relatable. There were a few that were incredibly cringeworthy, and and I mean, they they trot out old, uh, you know. Uh, images of home films of football games and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know all this kind of stuff so I mean that's intensely local right um, it'd be nice to see them better done in some instances <laughs> right. so, production value yeah. wasn't it also so. made me a little more optimistic about elections yeah. because yeah. Um, clearly when we have competitive elections the candidates really focus on what voters care about um, and that was I think pretty evident and I think it's a, a remind it was a reminder to me that you know, this isn't just about uh, what people say or how they behave. There's a lot of the way that we organize our politics that drives this, right? So there are structural elements of our politics, whether it's having districts where, you know, one party dominates uh, registration versus another, or how we pick people to be on the ballot in the first place, the size of the districts, you know, all these sort of structural elements play a role in this stuff and perhaps make us think we're more nationalized than we are or think that that's our preference to be nationalized and polarized mm -hmm. when maybe it's the structures that are driving that as much as the preference. Mm -hmm. Now you say in the book that turnout in 2020 was the highest since 1936. Uh, how, how did that play into this? Hmm. Hard to know, um, because, you know, it's only the only election we did. Um, but we assumed that turnout was being driven because of national factors, right? Because you either loved Trump or you hated him. Um, and so we thought that that would lead to more nationalization. Um, so I would assume in a, an election that has less turnout, I'm not, I don't think it would be quite as nationalized, but we didn't really see that. Right. Now, you also say in, you say in the book that the Democratic win in the presidential race did not translate into widespread success for other Democratic candidates in the state. Why? Again, this is an interesting question, right? Yeah. Because the, the uh, Biden won the presidential ra uh, race um, narrowly. Um, Josh Shapiro won the Auditor, Auditor General race. And then Republicans won everything else when you aggregate the vote. So congressional vote, uh, treasurer, uh, state Auditor General, uh, State House race. So, um, and, and I think one of the messages, or one of the reasons has to, one of the reasons has to be the messages and the candidate-centered centered nature of our campaigning. So candidates are able to overcome partisan disadvantages um, if they have the right message and they're able to, to appeal to voters. And so um, it's more evidence that nationalization isn't as 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 common as we think right? yeah it might have suggested too just to some extent a weakness at the top of the ticket you know I mean it, it may not have been that people were really turning out so much because they really liked so Biden won but they weren't turning out so much because they really loved Biden and, a, and, a, and, and an agenda he was putting forward 
the, the fact that he won was sort of a negative. It was because people came out to vote against Trump, you know. And so that doesn't then translate into sort of a whole party victory, right? There's no, he doesn't have coattails, in other words, right? Right. So, right. Mm -hmm. But I think it also shows that high quality candidates do well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, again, we, I know there were only, I think, 14. Um, congressional districts after 2020 that voted for Biden and had a Republican. And we have one of them in our state in, in uh, the first CD. And there are only, we're only 13 districts that voted for Trump and had a Democrat. And we had one of those, too. Um, I think it was in the eighth, uh, Cartwright. So, um, you know, Pennsylvania is a place where uh, I think voters are still uh, willing to split their tickets. Um, because, you know, it's much more common here than it is in other places. In fact, we had 12 uh, state house races that we followed. Six of them had a different result between president and state house, right? So um, now that, again, tells you that candidates can overcome nationalized forces with the right message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at the bigger picture, if we go back over decades in Pennsylvania, you talk about... Uh, that political change in Pennsylvania will reveal a stress in economically struggling state and talk about median household income declines, manufacturing employment declines. Over time, does that, does that shape uh, nationalization? Well, it yeah. certainly shapes the issue sets yeah. and the way that people uh, affiliate with the party um, or a party, right? I mean, there's, a, I think, a lot of evidence that the, the decline in manufacturing jobs has helped drive uh, what used to be what used to be Reagan Democrats or Casey Democrats towards the Republican Party. So I think the economic forces that we document in the book um, have helped change uh, the way that people uh, have registered and what party they're affiliated with. But economics is a, is a tricky issue in, in the context of nationalization it because it's always perennially an issue for voters everywhere. So in that sense, it's sort of national, right? How is the national economy doing? But it's often has very local uh, context, right? Or it has local characteristics. And so it's steel, steel mills closing in Western Pennsylvania or something, right? Which is a very local aspect to the economy. So I think, so it's hard, to, I think it's hard to get a good read on whether economics is always national or is usually local. Right. Well, and the, the issue of fracking is an interesting mm -hmm. one. And while it's not completely unique to Pennsylvania, it is, an important issue in Pennsylvania, made the cover of our book, um, and the president, presidential candidates ran ads about it. And I do think the reorientation of jobs in, in the Marcella Shell region um, has helped move some of this uh, movement, partisan movement from Democrats in the Southwest being labor union Democrats to being Republican uh, leaners. So um, Stephen's right. I, I mean, all of this stuff is complicated with lots of layers. Um, but I think the economics um, and, and perceptions about economic change and cultural change have driven most of this. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked earlier about some of the, the changes over time, where if we go back to the, the New Deal era or the period after World War II, and uh, you talk about how the parties themselves reorganized themselves and, and sought to kind of renew themselves. And you said the Democrats went through a reform process that focused on party rules and procedures. The Republicans focused on the party's organizational capacities. Are those differences still present in the two parties? 
Um, that's a good. That's a good question. I mean, Democrats do tend to be uh, procedural, and they look at their rules. You know, there, there are debates there just recently about superdelegates and their role in the nominating process. So the Democrats are really concerned about um, about those kinds of rules, and the Republicans have been just very good at, in, in part because at least until recently, it's been a party that's that organizationally is sort of top, is driven from the top. Um, and so they've been able to say, this is what we have to do to win, here's how we have to spend money, or here's how we have to organize ourselves in, you know, in terms of uh, uh, campaign advertising and providing resources for candidates to, to, to make ads. Um, and so, you know, I think that's still uh, basically the, the, the same um, situation as we had in the late 60s when, when the McGovern-Fraser Commission was, you know, what the Democrats put that together. So I think that's still true. Um, but it's hard to know because, again, I think the parties are so organizationally weak, it's not clear exactly what is going on at the national parties on, on either side. Yeah, right? It, right. it used to be that the states um, had their own unique, mm -hmm. and they still have their own unique uh, party apparatus, but I don't think anyone believes they're as strong and differentiated at the state level as they used to be. There has been a trend, I think, at that level to see some nationalization mm -hmm. um, and weakening. But part of the problem is that the parties don't have tools anymore. Yeah. I mean, they used to have control over money. They used to have a lot more control over organizations. They don't really have tools that they can use um, to kind of strengthen organizations. So it does seem like it's more grassroots now. I can think of a few party tools. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and in terms of uh, decentralization of parties, you, some of the things you're talking about are the sense that the parties are hollow. Yeah. Uh, but at mm -hmm. the same time, there's this perception of increasing nationalization. How do you how do you square the the two things? Well, I think, yeah. like I said earlier, I think it's a sense of of strong partisanship. So people have a. Uh, they identify with the parties more than they did in the past. Uh, a lot of their uh, other sort of identities line up with whatever their party choice is. So that sort of reinforces a real sense of um, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and that makes me very different than the other party and very much alike, like other people in my party. And so that sort of drives a lot of the kind of the rhetoric of our of our politics today. But the, again, the, the, the organizationally, the, the parties have a hard, just a hard time. You know, parties are pragmatic. They, they, they want to win more seats at the end of the day. They're not real. I mean, they seem ideological now because, that, because of the partisanship that people feel. But they are, at the end of the day, the organizations just will really want to do whatever it takes to win a majority in a legislature. Uh, and they're just not really able to do that now. Well, and there's also a difference between the activists and kind of the elites, because the activists are really pushing a party. They want policies, whereas the elites often want to win. Um, and there's also something else going on, which is negative partisanship. And I think that that's driving partisanship, too, that, that it's not so much that I like my party better, but I really dislike that other party. And one way to think about the parties, a kind of different way to think about them than as simple, you know, committees and organizations is as networks. And so that when you think of the Republican Party, it's, it's not just the Republican National Committee or the state Republican parties. Um, it's a whole host of, of groups that are, that are allied with the Republican Party, and same on the Democratic side. But it might even ex extend to certain media outlets and media figures who are pretty clearly on one side or the other. So when you think about parties that way, they have a little bit more reach. They have a little bit more uh, ability to, to, to direct things. Um, but still, 
you know, what we found was the interest groups that came into these races kind of followed the lead of the candidate. So if the candidate was running a national campaign, they just replicate that in their own advertising. If the candidate was running a local campaign, then they would run local issues in their in their advertising. So again, even if you think of these outside groups as, as really part of the party, they're still also following the lead of the candidates, suggesting that the organization isn't as strong as the as the candidates are. Let's talk about the academic side of this. You say the scholars interested in nationalization have largely ignored the role that campaigns play. And in a sense, it's you know, people uh, scholars are making choices about what they choose to study and what they don't, and if <laughs> what they if what they're not studying something, then that's information that is not available publicly. Uh, talk about that as scholars. Uh, <laughs> it's it's data. It's availability of data. Yeah, that's. I what mean, you know, the, but it, so much of what political scientists look at is vote is voters because there's so much data. There's election results. There's poll, there's polling data, and so I think that's you know it was it was really labor intensive to do this work, yes. which is why we credit you know our contributors because they were on the ground gathering all the information, following campaigns in their in their districts, and that's a lot of a lot of work. Uh, not that Absolutely. it's not a lot of work to you know to do voting behavior research, but it, but the data is just so widely available that it attracts. Yeah, there's no way just the three of us could have done this book. No, right. I mean, right. It, it, and that and that speaks to why I think uh, people choose to do other things because it's really hard to coordinate. Well, uh. as we as as we note in the book, I mean, there was no there's no clear defini definition of what it means to have a nationalized message, right? It's kind of you know it when you see it, and so I mean. We had to overcome that barrier, and then there was the data barrier because following campaigns, as, as Matt and Stephen have said, it's labor-intensive, and particularly in this day and age because, you know, you've got Facebook and Twitter and TikTok or whatever else might electronically be there. Then there are mailings. Like, many of our colleagues collected mailings and door hangings and when you think about campaign messaging we often think about tv ads which is an important part but there are so many different channels that they might use too and we tried to capture in all these case studies all those different channels to see you know is the mailing similar to the tv ad to the twitter uh, tweet you know that kind of thing we did have, I'm sorry, but we did have access to the to the advertising, which was important. We yes, had we had is. partnered with a with a, a firm called Ad Impact, and we had access to all the ads run in the in the state, and that's pretty unusual. And so again, if you're going to study campaigns, you're going to have to try to find that data somewhere or those yeah. those ads to watch and code them all, and that's that's pretty. I think that's one of the things that made our project so unique because we were able to do kind of aggregate data because we had all the ads, and then we were also able to drill down very deeply in individual cases, and I think that was pretty unique. Yeah, and then we married that to the voting data, to the campaign finance data. Actually, the advertising data had information about advertising spend and gross rating points, and, and we coded them thematically as well. So, you know, it was just a rich set of data uh, that we kind of brought together, uh, I think, in a unique way. So I, I, I want to get a little nerdier than we've been getting. Which is, we've already pretty been deep into it, but uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by different conceptions of, of nationalization. And you talk about, you mentioned a scholar named Morgan Stern who has uh, his concept of static nationalization versus dynamic nationalization. What's the difference? Oh, gosh. <laughs> been a while. You know, that's a, that's a, a um, uh, those are concepts from comparative 
political science, so uh, he's a, re a scholar who looks at lots of other countries, and it's not countries we, we study, we're, we're Americanists, and so it's been a while since I've looked at that, uh, at, at his research, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure off the top of my head what those <laughs> Okay, well, well, let me try it again okay. here. Uh, so two other dimensions of the concept of nationalization, dispersion and inflation. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, this is in the weeds. Yes. Right? It's, it's uh, way in the weeds. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, I mean, we covered, um, we, we, we sort of moved through, uh, to be fair, I mean, as we did the literature review, we kind of, spit out these different ways that sometimes these have been conceptualized. But, but basically, we discarded them because most of them were from other political systems that really didn't apply. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't think any of us really lodged them in our brain as like, you know, we do the background research to say, are there concepts we can use or redefine and, and make our own, and none of those really applied to what we were doing. I mean, essentially what these other definitions are trying to get at is, are, are you seeing patterns sort of across different districts that look similar, or are you seeing patterns up and down the, sort of the ballot, right, that look similar? And those are two different ways of trying to measure or look at nationalization. Um, are you looking at uh, nationalization that might be happening presently or are you looking over time so there you know there's a couple of different ways to do it of course we only having only done one year we're looking at it at one place um, but we're trying to combine this idea of looking up and down the ballot and across uh, geography so yeah. so we have just a couple of minutes left and I just want to wrap up by asking each of you now that you've done this study what's say one question that's on your mind that you would like to go forward with <laughs> hmm. Wow one question well I would love to know if uh, this travels. If um, you know this, this we found some very interesting findings here. But could we replicate this? Could we replicate this in Pennsylvania again? Could we replicate this nationally? Um, that's what I would really like to know. Yeah. And so we've generated some hypotheses, I think, from this. And so you know, going to to a, a state that's not a swing state, uh, not a not a battleground state in a presidential election, would our hypotheses hold in those places? I think. Yeah. I think that's the the next step. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling the same. I mean, we have plans to do this in other states, and, and hopefully we can do that. You know, Pennsylvania is a unique place. It's one of a few true swing states, um, very competitive races. And so um, while this, this gave us an opportunity to form some ideas and to kind of define, do a better job of defining the concepts that we studied and to come up with some hypotheses, we, we need to see if if this holds in other places because, you know, as as you've seen, Pennsylvania has more split districts than most other places. I think there's some refinement too of of what we mean yes. by nationalization yes. and how exactly it differs from polarization. I mean, I think we have a pretty good handle on that, but there's more yeah. work to be done there yeah, too. Yeah, I think that's a, the other element of it: the polarization nationalization connection. Right. For sure, we've talked a lot about that. Well, we've been talking about the books, Are All Politics Nationalized? Evidence from the 2020 Campaigns in Pennsylvania. And our guests have been Stephen Medvick, Matthew Skousen, and Burwood Yost. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thanks Thank for, you having, for us. having us. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. 
This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.